Bulletproof Radio, a state of high performance. You're listening to Bulletproof Radio with Dave Asprey. What if there was a way to feel younger for longer? Well, there is. Your body needs something called the NAD plus molecule to help you age well. When you're young, your body makes a lot of NAD plus, and that helps you make energy. It helps you keep your DNA healthy, absorb nutrients well, and it protects your cells from stress. But once you hit about 30, your NAD plus levels start to drop. The good news is that longevity scientists have found some things that can help, like niacin, niacinamide, and niagen. They help your body make more NAD plus even as you age. All three of these are in an amazing formula called Qualia NAD+. Check out Qualia NAD+, risk-free, for up to 100 days at neurohacker.com slash Dave15 to save an extra 15%. That's neurohacker.com slash Dave15, Qualia NAD+. It's what I use. Everyone's talking about red light therapy beds, and for good reason. There's a company called ARRC LED that's building an entirely new class of LED devices. ARRC LED beds integrate proprietary scanning technology and frequency protocols to shape the delivery of six different wavelengths in dose-optimized photobiomodulation. Yes, that's a lot of words. What it is, though, is that photobiomodulation improves the underlying energetics of the cells in your body. And those changes can benefit nearly every tissue and organ and system in your body. You change your cells and you change your life. For more information, visit ARRCLED.com. Today's cool fact of the day is that the velocity of a sneeze is around 100 miles an hour, and when you sneeze, it can actually travel up to five feet, which is kind of gross. But sneezing is your way of keeping your nose clean, and usually it comes from dust or some other thing, sometimes even a strong immune response that causes your mucous membranes to be irritated. And it's true. It's impossible to sneeze with your eyes open, and you can't sneeze when you're asleep. And if you do sneeze, it'll change your heart rate variability, but your heart won't stop functioning when you sneeze, even though urban legends say that's true. What if there was a way to level up your energy, get rid of stress, and take more control of your body? Welcome to Quantum Upgrade. This is a new technology that taps into quantum energy to help you feel amazing. Quantum Upgrade has a lot of different products that help protect you from EMF and help activate your body's natural healing abilities. You can expect better sleep, more resilience, less stress, and better blood flow. The cool thing about Quantum Upgrade is that the products are backed by a lot of heavy-duty scientific studies, and there's a new measurable upgrade. You can now use Quantum Upgrade to increase your consciousness levels between 1,400 and 2,200 on the Hawkins map of consciousness. If you don't know what that means, do some research because it's impressive, it's fun to learn about, and it's something that I've come to understand. Ready to try Quantum Upgrade? Visit quantumupgrade.io slash Dave for a seven-day free trial. We have a great interview today with Andrew Tillen, the author of a book called The Doper Next Door. Andrew talks about his experience with performance-enhancing drugs during a competitive season of bike racing. We talk about the pros and cons of his experiment, and we try to educate people on the use of steroids. Now we're going to move on to our exclusive interview with Andrew Tillon. In the name of science, Andrew Tillon became a citizen doper. In 2008, this freelance writer and amateur cyclist used supplemental testosterone and DHEA to improve his cycling performance. He chronicled his journey in his book called The Doper Next Door. Andrew has written for many publications, including the New York Times, Wired, GQ, Rolling Stone, Yoga Journal, and Runner's World. He was also a senior editor for Business 2.0 and is a contributing editor for Outside Magazine. He joins us today to talk about his experience with doping, the dangers, the perks, and how it changed his life. Andrew, tell us, what prompted you to experiment with steroids in the first place? I like to think of it, Dave, as a social experiment, really a social experiment in seeking and finding youth. And that's not necessarily how it started, but that's ultimately what happened. And, and it became a social experiment, not just for myself, but for my family, friends, and a, a larger circle of people. 
So do you mind if I ask, how old are you now, and how old were you when you started uh, your social experiment? Yeah, I'm 46 now. Uh, so I was I was 42 when it began, and it began both as uh, an interest in sort of feeling young again, and it also began as a long-time journalist following athletics, following elite athletes, um, seeing what they could do, and knowing that uh, there was a lot of doping going on, and wondering. What would it be like for a regular guy to do this kind of thing? What would it be like for a face in the crowd, so to speak, to take these uh, drugs and, and do other people uh, and do other people do that? And then I, I would, you know, I, w- I was a bike racer, a road racer at the time, and I would go to these races and I'd be convinced that there were others doing it. And I went through a long process of actually trying to find a citizen doper, quote unquote to write about. I wanted to write a story, a magazine story or a book about someone's experiences um, doing this kind of thing. And so that, that was a long process, maybe six, seven months of really hard looking before, for various reasons, I decided to become the lab rat myself. I wish we'd known each other back then. I've been taking supplemental testosterone uh, for the last decade, uh, except for the last two months, because people say that uh, that my gains come from that, not from the diet. So I quit doing it just to show that the diet works by itself. But uh, we would have had a good time chatting back then. Yeah. Well, did you were you were you a bike racer too? I was a bike racer before that, but uh, I was uh, too busy being an entrepreneur to be a successful racer. Uh, but uh, I, I'm intrigued to go further into our discussion. Can you tell our listeners which performance-enhancing drugs or hormones you used, just so they can sort of get an idea of the scope of your experiment? Sure. I used testosterone. That was the big hitter. And, of course, that is a a taboo drug to many red-blooded males. Uh, You know, we, we know all about testosterone from what we hear on ESPN or reading Sports Illustrated or reading the sports pages because it's a prohibited substance uh, because it promotes the, the growth of muscle tissue, essentially, to simplify. And um, and uh, it was easy for me to access. That was also important. Uh, hence the name of the book, The Doper Next Door. I took another hormone 2, DHEA, another prohibited substance in many, in, in, in sports, many sports. And I took that sort of to prime the pump for testosterone, or so I was told by my hormone guru. And uh, I, I took only those two drugs because that's what, my, that's what was suggested to me. And I also only took those drugs because um, I wanted to prove a point with this book, and that is how easy it is to access, particularly testosterone. Middle-aged guys nowadays, they just all they need to do is watch uh, golf on television to see giant pharmaceutical companies advertise um, for supplemental testosterone and to promote testosterone supplementation. Uh, they just need to go to their doctor. Well, not just, but they go to their doctor and have a frank conversation about maybe how they're feeling, uh, have blood work done, uh, a highly interpreted read of their testosterone levels follows, and then they may or may not be given supplemental testosterone. So that's why I stuck with those two. And and the other reason I stuck with those two, Dave, was to sort of go further up the ladder in terms of performance-enhancing drugs, human growth hormone, erythropoietin, or or, uh, blood enhancers, um, I would have had to go to a black market, so to speak. I would have had to buy those drugs illicitly. Um, my doctor wouldn't prescribe me those drugs. And that wasn't within sort of the spirit of the book, which is how every man can, quote-unquote, be a, quote-unquote, doper. So, so you skipped modafinil and uh, Adderall, or commonly known as meth, which uh, certainly on the meth side of things would have been a good idea to skip. This is I'd be talking out of school to talk about things that don't know about those drugs. Okay, so so you you skipped those ones. So you you focused on performance enhancing hormones, which is uh, important. Now, you mentioned that it was relatively easy to find uh, testosterone. And what form did you take it in, and where did you get it? Like, how hard was this? Yeah. So 
I began, really this whole experiment began uh, by, with my wife. My wife was, she's about my age and she was going through some early hormonal changes and I would notice these hormonal changes quite often, either in her mood or her libido or lack thereof or her, or the fact that she'd wake up in the middle of the night with night sweats. And she ultimately went to a women's health doctor, was given hormone replacement therapy and I saw that these hormones had very powerful, created powerful changes in her body. I was impressed and sort of wowed and just did some internet surfing on that and discovered that many middle-aged men were being prescribed testosterone too and there were lots of websites speaking to this. And so I went to my doctor and I said, well, do I need this stuff? And my, my, this is my primary care physician and she and I had blood work done and, and my blood work showed that indicated that I was quite low within a quote-unquote normal range, but very low within this normal range. And so my doctor, my primary care physician said, um, no, you don't need it. But I wasn't satisfied. I mean, at that point, I was, I'm a journalist. I was curious. I'd read a lot about it. I read about a lot of people taking it. Testosterone is uh, a billion-dollar uh, supplement industry, um, you know, millions of prescriptions are written for testosterone every year. And so I went to a couple other doctors and got, including my urologist. My urologist wanted to put me on a modest amount of testosterone. Again, I'm a journalist. I wanted to tell sort of the, the biggest and most compelling story I could within the realms of taking this drug. And so I, I embarked on a, a little mission to, to talk to doctors in the anti-aging community. And anti-aging is sort of a an offshoot of medicine, so to speak. Some people would think that it's mere quackery. Other people would say, no, you know, there's, there, there, there is some legitimacy to anti-aging medicine, which doesn't want that these people, and they are physicians and some of them are not, uh, they don't want you to live forever. They want your quality of life to be as high as it can be, as long as it can be. And they believe that testosterone has a place there and I ended up going to a couple of anti-aging doctors. One scared me because he was willing to give me testosterone without um, really monitoring my blood levels very closely. But then another woman was very thorough and looked at my same blood levels that my primary care physician had looked at and said, I, you should be on this. And uh, she worked with uh, a woman by the name of Susie Wiley has a protocol called the Wiley protocol, both for women and for men. And the one for men is a testosterone protocol and it is very aggressive. It's very high levels of testosterone. And uh, again, in the spirit of telling a great story, I, I started on this protocol and it was uh, a topical, cream-based. I would put it on my groin and on my back between the DHEA and the testosterone uh, twice, a, often twice a day the T twice, as I came to call testosterone, the T twice a day, DHEA once. That's, uh, it's kind of funny. We actually had uh, Wiley um, on a very early uh, incarnation of the show. And, oh, yeah, uh, what was that like? <laughs> you know, she, she's an interesting lady. She certainly um, very, has a very strong opinion. And I, I've met her in person. She actually gave me a copy of, of her, her book, uh, Sex, Lies, and Menopause, at an anti-aging show. I didn't mention this at the beginning of the show, but I've run an anti-aging uh, nonprofit, like education research group for, good God, I've been involved in leadership there for almost 10 years. Um, so a lot of a lot of what I do it, it comes from anti-aging, and I hang out with a lot of the same kind of doctors you're talking about there. And okay. you hit it right in the head. It, it's Pardon about me. living more and living longer, uh, not living forever, which is a, an important thing a lot of people don't understand. Yeah, that's an important distinction, and that actually, to me, lends to you know the credibility of that industry, and it also, you know, that industry asks a lot of questions that the traditional medical industry can't answer, or is sort of unwilling to go to, and you know, there's a, there's a lot of uh, profit built into the traditional medical industry and big pharmaceutical industry anymore, and so that's the part that I find highly compelling about it, the anti-aging world. You know, the problem is, is that there's still um, some questionable characters um, promoting things that, are, that you just, uh, you don't know about. And that, they, frankly, they don't know about. And Susie herself will be the first to tell you that she is a citizen scientist. Now, does that mean that we shouldn't listen to her because she's not a PhD, you know, um, 
or an MD? Uh, the answer is I don't know. She is very charismatic and passionate, and and her arguments are are um, well scripted. And her books too are are one third of the length as usually references. I I would not want to get into uh, an argument with her about you know, hormones are bad for you in all cases because I absolutely know that you'd lose. Well, she came to one of my readings uh, in Albuquerque, New Mexico. I was reading from this book, and my book is both supportive and critical of Susie. And she was uh, I honored the way that uh, the way that she approached the discussion and uh, the way that. You know, the debate we had afterwards and the dialogue and, you know, at the end of the day, Susie just does not understand why in God's name any middle-aged man, you know, who's low on testosterone would not be on it. So uh, it just, it, it's like two plus two equals five in that equation for her if you're not on it. So um, that's her perspective. Andrew, we've talked a little bit about some of the problems with finding practitioners who know what they're talking about. What were some of the biggest challenges you faced throughout your entire experiment? Well, one was that, you know, that was the start. And I finally went to, I finally found an, an internist with many, many years experience as an MD. Um, and that, again, that doesn't necessarily legitimize someone or delegitimize someone, but I felt like she had a, she had a broad perspective and she had balanced thinking. She was very forthcoming with me in terms of saying, you're a guinea pig. This is, you know, you're part of a, you're part of a large experiment. I'm going to watch you carefully. I'm going to monitor your blood levels four times a year, uh, and it was a, about a year-long experiment. And I'm going to, um, you know, tell you uh, to go higher or lower, or, or I'm going to, I'm going to be a, a critic. I'm not just going to be a cheerleader saying take more. Or, or she was, she, she had a raised eyebrow while still prescribing it to me, which I thought was very healthy. And, um, you know, I pushed her to give me uh, human growth hormone because I wanted to try that. And she was like, you're out of your mind. I won't do it. Not enough science there. Um, I could lose my license for, for prescribing it to you. I could get in a lot of trouble. Um, and you don't need it. And I, I, I honored her for that. I thought that that was, that was reassuring. It was disappointing in a certain way, but, you know, reassuring and also reassuring for my health. Uh, I didn't want to. I didn't want to hurt myself doing this experiment. And the growth hormone science is uh, is is not complete. Um, other than that, uh, my other concerns. Uh, I have a family. I have a wife. I have children, and I worried about, um, or I wondered. Part of going back to what I call the social experiment: what was life going to be like? Um, taking this stuff and having a family around. And, and the, sort of the opening of the book is both sort of funny and dark. I'm in my bathroom putting on the testosterone for the first time, and I'm nervous, you know, and my, my kids are on the other side of the door just banging on it because we're going to be late for school, and I'm taking them to school. And I sort of asked myself, did Jose Canseco have moments like this? And I wondered, too, you know, I mean, what was this stuff going to do to me? Was it going to make me stronger, faster, um, more masculine, uh, more macho? Was it going to make me a jerk? Was it going to make me scary? Was it going to make me sick? Uh, was it going to change my relationships? And um, I would say that, you know, the, the year that followed hit on a bunch of those notes. I'd be interested to know, Dave, how much testosterone you took and how you took it. Uh, I took it in a cream form. It's a bioidentical uh, form of testosterone uh, that's compounded for me. Uh, I took about 10, I'm blinking on whether it's micrograms, milligrams um, a day. Something grams. Something yeah. small yeah, it was. Uh, it's kind of crazy. I'm not thinking of it right now. But yeah, I did okay. that for almost 10 years. I measured the blood levels a couple times a year after the first year, um, and it, for me, it, it had really positive mental effects as well as uh, physical effects. But keep in mind, I was obese for the first half of my life. I used to weigh 300 pounds. I weigh 200 pounds now, and because uh, of that, my estrogen levels were very high, and my testosterone was, you know pretty much at old man level, even though I was uh, only 30. So oh, there was wow. a therapeutic reason. 
Um, it, it is quite a tale, but part of the tale is that you know I've been off of it for a while, and, and throughout those 10 years, I've gone off for a couple of months here and there just to see what would happen. And um, pretty much, I'm, I'm able to self-sustain without it, and uh, I'm going to go off of it for at least six months now and look at the effects of just the Bulletproof Diet, which is itself very testosterone-friendly, and look at what you can do nutritionally. And I'm almost 40. I, I just turned 39 earlier this year. So I'm, I'm getting older, but I'm kind of you know seeing what happens without the testosterone uh, just, uh, just because I think I can, but I don't think there's anything wrong with taking it. I think it helped me enormously. Uh-huh, uh-huh. Well, you were certainly in a sort of a different place in your life than I was with mine. I mean, you know, I was already, I'm, I'm, I'm a little guy. I'm, uh, I don't carry a lot of extra body weight. I'm just built small and, um, you know, five, eight, 145 pounds. And so, and I was fit and I was, and I was adding this to sort of the regimen. And so it had, you're the perfect cyclist frame, but how, how did this affect your performance actually? You know, what, what did it do to your times or your heart rate or how did you measure your performance on this? Yeah. So I think, uh, let's be clear here. I, I'm a journalist. I'm not a scientist. I'm one guy. This is not any sort of uh, scientific experiment. This is an unscientific guy next door experiment. And so I had a pow- what's called a power meter for my bicycle. Um, a power meter is a is an elaborate electronic device that actually measures the power that your legs push uh, into each pedal stroke as you pedal a bicycle, and it's a very scientific way to measure your performance. Um, and I say that not to to sort of toot my own horn, but to say that that's how power meters are basically uh, the ways that that uh, virtually every pro cyclist used to to improve upon their performance, right? Their, their coaches and support staffs um, hooked them up to power, hooked their bikes up to power meters. And so I had one of those and my power went up um, dramatically over the course of that year, right? Um, these numbers won't mean anything just sort of floating around, but from 260 watts I could hold, I went up to 310 watts. Now I will tell you that I also trained harder and I trained harder for a couple of reasons. Uh, one being uh, the passion. I mean, it just became more and more fun because what the testosterone really helped me with, and um, the scientists will argue, but this is this was my experience. This is my experience. Was it was a recovery drug for me. It allowed me, my body to snap back more quickly from hard workouts, and what that enables you to do, of course, is to work out harder more often, and then it just snowballs. The harder you can work out, and the more often you can do it. Uh, and the faster your body recovers, well, the fitter you're going to get. So the, the testosterone, it, will it turn anybody into, well, will any performance enhancing drug turn anybody into a world caliber athlete? The answer is no. You have to add training to the mix. But um, so many of these drugs will actually help you recover, which will help you to train. So that was, you know, the most the, the most scientific approach to, or the most scientific aspect was that. And of course, I also had my my blood measured and my testosterone measured within my blood. And I went from the high 200s in terms of testosterone content in my blood, and, it, and it's a unit of measure, um, to I believe it was nearly 800. And that is at the, the high end of normal. I still was in the normal spectrum. In fact, Susie Wiley ultimately wanted to give me more testosterone, but I felt like I had plenty going on because I had all sorts of other feelings. But in terms of my performance, it was that ability to recover. And I went to races and I raced, um, and I knew I was breaking the rules. That was part of the experiment too for myself, for my own head, for my friends, for my fellow racers. What's it like to race either as or with a doper? And... um, you know, I did better in my race. So I'm not a great bike racer. I'm, I'm, I'm on sort of at the entry level end, a cat four, as you would say. I'm not a cat two or cat one, but I felt like that helped me in terms of the, the, the book because I wasn't sort of, at the end of the day, I wasn't racing anybody to, um, uh, as a livelihood. This was, we were racing for fun and bragging rights and, you know, maybe a new tire or case of power bars. You don't race at that level. Um, to make a living. Uh, but I did better in those races, and I would dictate in those races. I, I felt like I had a lot of power late in those races, and 
I would sort of break apart uh, the group and uh, force people to ride fast to keep up with me. I wasn't smart or good enough to win, fortunate or unfortunately, but I, I tried. It, it sounds, I mean, you, you got an increase in performance, an increase in recovery, and an increase in passion. It sounds like this was good for you. Uh, what was uh, what was the downside here? Well, it, it, there was a lot that's good. I mean, you know, in, in terms of sheer black and white, one downside was, of course, that I was I was breaking rules, right? It, right or wrong, that that a that a forty-something man should be racing against twenty-somethings, um, and I did race against twenty-somethings in some of my races because the category, the way the category sort of shook out and the races shook out. I would be racing against guys almost half my, yeah, half my age. You know, I, I don't think it's necessarily fair that a 40-year-old has to race against 20-somethings, but those are the rules, and I wasn't playing by them. So one downside was I broke rules, and I ultimately paid for it in terms of being suspended from bike racing for two years, being banned from the sport, and all my results being erased from my year of doping. But beyond that, uh, my relationships were challenged uh, because, you know, there's a term called roid rage, which the medical community does not embrace, does not believe exists. But there, there are some experts, hormone experts, who believe that um, that ex- an excess of testosterone might prime the pump in someone who is irritable, someone who has, who's prickly, and I can be prickly, and I would get short. Um, you know, I had arguments with my wife and my children. My children were too young to really know what was going on. Uh, they were, during the experiment, they were in the eight and six range. So, you know, I, I kind of felt like they were, uh, they were victims at times of, of my short fuse and my anger. And uh, it never got to the point where I was tearing, tearing apart my home or throwing things or anything like that. But I did get to the point where I was having bad arguments with my wife and she would, she was saying, this is not the person I know. And that sort of coupled with the fact that Wiley had me on very high amounts of testosterone, much higher than yours, Dave. Um, And, uh, and, and when I was on the, and it was cyclical, it wasn't a consistent amount over the course of each month. And, uh, in the deepest and highest parts of the cycles when I was taking the most, I seemed to be the most sort of prickly. And I would say the other challenge was that, uh, like you, mine was a topical, but I was using gobs of it, and I had to be very careful in terms of not getting it on towels or sheets or um, clothing that I might rub onto uh, members of the family. Uh, I worried about... Um, my children, there are some isolated cases reported to the U.S. government about oh, what's called virilization, which is uh, when kids are exposed to hormones, testosterone, and uh, their bodies develop <clears throat> prematurely. It's just a bad thing. You know, I didn't want my eight-year-old sprouting pubic hair, and there are documented cases of that. Um, and uh, so, so I had to be careful, in fact, uh, a strong argument can be made that my testosterone did rub off on my wife and um, her levels went through the roof. And her her women's health doctor at one point was like, you're on your way to becoming a man. You got you guys got to be more careful. Well, so, so I, I don't want to, uh, you to cross it to, to two personal areas here, but there are – actually, I, I know some of the followers of my blog, some women who occasionally have used uh, testosterone for its – its performance-enhancing benefits more for quality of life. We're talking relatively small amounts, maybe even less than your wife got, but they, they've they generally reported that uh, in very small doses that their just their passion at work, um, their sex drive, and just like, like their energy throughout the day skyrockets without, you know, growing a mustache. Did you see any of that in your relationship, or um, was it mostly a negative effect uh, on, on your wife as well? Dude, there were many positives. <laughs> okay, that's what we're talking about. I, I, I sleep in the same bed as my wife. <laughs> yeah, and, uh, and uh, it just was, her levels just got very high, you know, and so I was, I was concerned, and it was 
although Susie Wiley argues otherwise, and, and you know, and I, I state that in the book that, that Wiley didn't believe that my cream was rubbing off on her, but um, but my my doctor, sort of the intermediary between me and Wiley, definitely was concerned about what what's called, called contamination, and. So, yeah, Wiley prescribes testosterone, or doesn't prescribe, she's not an MD. She suggests that women go through a doctor and perhaps in their midlife take some testosterone. Like your listeners, people taking small amounts for added libido, perhaps, you know, aggressiveness is not the right word, but maybe added assertiveness maybe stronger in their convictions. And I was, and I was all those things too. And, and yeah, there was that funny, blurry line between what was um, sort of considered a little too aggro on my part and what was considered swagger and fun and assertiveness. Uh, my libido shot through the roof, I mean, to the point where <laughs> I would catch myself looking at, at women in, in ways that I hadn't done since I was a teenager, and it was all at once sort of like highly entertaining, a lot of fun and supremely obnoxious. <laughs> so, <laughs> so, you know, I was kind of like, wow, who am I now? You know, but that, that spilled over into my relationship with my wife, and that was largely a good thing. And combine that with her sort of being contaminated and her drives and swagger going up. And, yeah, there were fireworks that were really, really fun, you know. And, uh, again, that that line is weird and blurry and inconsistent between well when does the the fun you know stop and and sort of the the questioning of this stuff begin and um, you know I don't know I never found that line during the year of the experiment um, by the time her testosterone had shot through the roof it was pretty much time for me to get off get off the testosterone that is so you. Uh... Uh, you, you stopped it entirely, and to this day, uh, you're not using even small doses, right? I, I am clean for, <laughs> that's probably not the word you like to use, but it's the word, that the, <laughs> it's the word that the doping cops really like for me to use because um, I'm, I'm a sanctioned athlete, and, and, I, and I can, uh, is that the right term? I, I, I am, uh, they can come in whenever they want. They the, the USA Night Doping Agency knows where I am theoretically every minute of every day and they have the right to walk into wherever I am, um, cup in hand and make me pee into it. And if they find exogenous testosterone in that, uh, in, in my urine and it's easy for them to find, um, I will be likely banned for life from bike racing. So, so uh, as long, as long as you race, this is not an option for you. As long as I race or I want to race, it's not an option. And, you know, that goes back to Wiley and her, the disconnect that she sort of encounters between, or she believes exists between uh, a middle-aged man who wants to be virile and athletic and, and here's this hormone sort of waiting for him, you know, to put his levels back up to what they were um, when he was a young, younger man. Uh, versus the rule book, which says you can't do that. I mean, and, and I understand both sides of the equation. It's a slippery slope for a doping agency. If they let, you know, a middle-aged man who says, well, look, at my levels are low. If they let that guy take the tea, suddenly the floodgates are open. And, you know, I, I will remind you and, and your listeners that even while, um, you know, pharmaceutical companies can prescribe can and do prescribe testosterone, and and for many cases, they prescribe it for for men that are, you know, very low or or estrogen dominant, or you know, in a way where it's it's a no-brainer. But for gray areas, people like me, you know, who is normal low, um, uh, there's no proof uh, long term that this is uh, that, that this is safe. Right there's there's no proof that it's enormously detrimental, but there have been long-term studies uh, using testosterone halted because of uh, um, side effects, you know, potential cardiac events, as as one study um, 
as one study addressed, but that was for 70-year-old men, not in great health. Well, how does that translate for a 40-something guy who wants to take it? The answer is nobody knows. Those studies have not been done. Um, and so, you know, that, that was another reason I stopped. What are the long-term health effects of me taking this drug as a guy who's, you know, sort of low, kind of low, interpretively low, but not lower than low? And I don't know that I wanted to take that chance. So, yes, I, I am not on the tee right now, even though I miss it. So you do miss it. Uh, that, that was actually going to be my next question for you. Um, if if there wasn't the cycling prohibition, would you still uh -huh. be taking some of it now? The answer is a big, fat maybe. You know, I... <laughs> uh, I would have to I would have to debate it. I, going back to I would have to decide in what form to take it. I, there there are um, times when I think the best way to do it is with a syringe. Uh, you know you don't have to worry about contamination. You don't have to worry about um, rubbing the stuff on. Uh, it's a little bit more uneven apparently in terms of its effect because you get this giant injection of it, there's no sort of time release or it's not absorbed in any sort of gradual fashion. Suddenly, you know, hello, bloodstream. Uh, but but I, I know people that use a syringe to take their testosterone and have done it for years that way and are happy about it. But, you know, there'd be nagging questions that I would have about these long-term effects. And, and really, Dave, the bigger question here uh, that I pose in the book is, what am I chasing? I'm not saying that I'm not chasing the right things in wanting to be younger and youthful and feel more virile, but maybe God or if you don't believe in God, some higher being or some evolutionary decree has been put down where aging is maybe part of the process of living. And, you know, that doesn't float so well with the anti-aging community. Uh, they say be all you can be, but maybe being less than you can be is maybe part of having a perspective on life. I don't know. I'm just throwing that out there. And, uh, and that, there are days where... Go ahead. That's incredibly um, perceptive, and, and it's definitely a debate in the anti-aging community. Um, I've definitely angered a few people by looking them straight in the eye and saying everyone dies, and you know the universe will come to an end at some point, and you'll die then if you haven't done before. Uh, yeah. So... You know, we we all know it's there, but the idea of, of fighting against death to me isn't that isn't that interesting anymore. Versus, you know, making the most of every minute that I have before I die, recognizing that it's going to happen. It's a little bit more of a, a holistic Buddhist kind of thing mixed in with the anti-aging thing. But um, believing you're going to die makes makes it so that your life is a little bit more precious, and that actually may drive you to choose to be more virile or choose to be more powerful in your life, maybe even through the use of testosterone, which is that weird conundrum, right? That's right. Or, I mean, the flip side of that is you may choose to have a different experience later in your life, and that, that may be about being less in your body and more in your head and in your conscience, and um, it may not matter to you that you're, you know, I mean, there were some really interesting moments when I decided to go off the stuff and, and to never, you know, I mean, to, to really go away from it. First off, I, I failed a couple of times in trying to go off it because I didn't want to. Um, but in some of those moments, I, you know, I looked at myself in the mirror and thought, well, I'm never going to be sort of, and I wasn't buff, but I'm never going to probably, I'll never be this powerful again. And it's a weird feeling to consciously know that you're not going to be, you're not going to be, a, you know, the physical specimen you are at that very moment ever again, because unless you perhaps go back on these drugs. But again, you know, who's to say that what it is that satisfies us and brings us happiness and wisdom and uh, a feeling of fullness as we grow older? It, for some people, it may absolutely be feeling. Uh, strong in their bodies and sort of sound in the mind uh, in a way that's been enhanced by something, some sort of um, additive supplement, uh, synthetic, 
uh, for other people, it may it may be like, you know what, I, I, I want to experience what this is like without that stuff. And, you know, I mean, you can draw that to an extreme. It's like, well, great. So, I mean, that's practically Christian scientist as in, well, you know, don't take anything then and just just suffer through pain and, and you know, perhaps die an early death and blah, blah, blah. I'm not saying that. But I don't know. There might be There might be insight had in growing older if you do it without this stuff, maybe not. And, and I, the last thing I'll say on this point is I'm still pretty darn fit and strong I'm in my mid forties. I may sing a completely different tune 10 or 15 years down the line. I may be like, serve it all up, buddy. I'm just, I am missing life. <laughs> you know, it's, 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 it's a 46 year old perspective now in 15 years, it might be completely different. That, that's also a fair point. Uh, the members of the anti-aging group, which is called the Silicon Valley Health Institute um, that, that I run, um, some of them are, are in their 80s. You know, they look like they're 60 and they're dating 40-year-olds. And um, I, I, I can definitely say that at more advanced years, the impact of things like this is it's shocking and amazing um, when, when you have a proper anti-aging protocol that includes some of these, but you know, you're in that middle ground where, <laughs> you know, you're not old and you're in good shape. Right. So it, yeah. it is a very tough line. And I, I respect the way you're thinking about this very much. Well, I also think that, um, you know, I, w- I went to an anti-aging clinic in, in Las Vegas and sat down with uh, the guys there and at Senegenics. And I mean, they were, they were pretty clear with me. They said, you are atypical, you know, you're atypical for somebody of your age, not, not even because of your age, but you come in, you're already, you know, in good shape. Uh, you're not overweight. Usually the people we get coming in are exhausted, you know, have aged way too early, uh, carrying too much weight. And, uh, so, you know, they, they can be offered sort of a, a second lease on life that perhaps, um, they didn't think was attainable. Now, even fairness to Senegenics, Senegenics will also say, uh, you got to improve your diet. You got to improve your sleep. You've got to improve your fitness. You know, it'll be, it's, it's holistic. And I think that the anti-aging industry is largely that anyway. It is holistic. It's not just sort of like take these drugs and, you know, dial back the clock. It's much more along the lines of take these drugs and be far more responsible for yourself. Right. I mean, wouldn't you agree? Uh, totally. Uh, in fact, one of uh, one of my favorite uh, anti-aging physicians, uh, Dr. Miller in uh, in Los Altos, uh, sorry, in Los Gatos, California, he, um, he looked at me one day and he said, Dave, the most impactful thing that I've been able to recommend in a long time is that people do uh, these breathing exercises from a, a book called Meditation is Medicine. He, he said, I, I can recommend this, but you know, my, my patients are responsible, but uh, I can't get them to do these things, and it really frustrates me. Uh, so, you know, the the idea of a physician looking at hormones, nutrition, supplements, exercise, sleep, uh, and then even uh, meditation, and trying to, to put it all together into a program to make older people feel younger, it, it's definitely not what you get at your your primary care physician. But I find it valuable, and I've seen it reverse the lives of older, very sick people, and, and it seems to work. Yeah, yeah, but you know, I mean, we're, we're we live and have been trained um, to live in a society where you know the pills and the syringes and the shots and the lotions are what's those are the answers. You know, we we can we can abuse our bodies, but this stuff will save us. And and we sort of I hate to use the word brainwash. We've been heavily influenced in that thinking by the marketing of drugs in America, and so. You know, whatever people take, I still think that at the end of the day, and, and including what they take, you are responsible for you, and you are your best advocate, and you are your best critic, and whatever you use, you should be mindful of, of how you use it, and, um, and you should be mindful of the way you treat your body, period, you know. Uh, it's yeah. funny, Susie, Susie Wiley will debate uh, the idea that that uh, exercise and and uh, and nutrition, particularly exercise, maybe not so much nutrition, exercise really. Uh, she she sort of shrugs her shoulders at the ability of exercise to sort of make us feel young. Um, but she's a big proponent of a lot of sleep. I'll tell you that. 
it's really funny that big variables seem to be nutrition, uh, sleep, uh, and exercise. And uh, it seems like you can achieve goals with almost any one of those three, or certainly by focusing on just one. And finding a balance of those three that, that works for you it is there. And we've had guys like Bill Andrews, an expert in uh, telomeres, come on and talk about the telomere lengthening effects of, of what I would consider to be shockingly unhealthy amounts of cardio. Uh, so it, it there really are different axes to making that decision. And uh, I, I'm not sure there's one right answer. I, I think it, uh -huh. it's you know an optimizing uh, thing that you'll run your entire life. You'll optimize how you feel and perform if you're aware of how you feel and perform. Uh-huh, uh-huh. Anyway, we digress. Sorry. Um, we do. Speaking of enhancing performance, what were the most profound changes you noticed before dope or after you started doping and after you finished it? And another question is, did you ever purposely push the limits of this experiment, maybe to make the book a little more exciting, since you are kind of writing the book as you go? Yeah. Um, I'm a small-framed guy, and I remained small-framed, of course, throughout the experiment. I did have bigger muscles, um, more definition. Um, that was apparent. Uh, and then uh, that, that ability to recover. So again, going back to, you know, I would race against guys who I'd been racing against for years. and I'd be leaving them behind. I mean, that's, that's a qualitative result, but uh, it was pretty apparent to all of us that, um, that some levers had been thrown inside of me. And, um, you know, after I got off it, uh, I was banned from racing. Well, no, that's not true. I wasn't banned from racing for a long time afterwards because I didn't let the secret out. But I, uh, after I got off it, I, it was winter. Um, I stopped training. I, I, I stopped taking the stuff. I, I did have some weird hormonal effects coming off the drugs. And I was worried coming off the drugs that I would, you know, that my hormones would go way out of whack and then I would uh, develop um, man boobs, uh, which can happen. But uh, Wiley had assured me that sort of the brew she'd concocted wouldn't allow that to happen as I went off, and it, it didn't. Uh, but I was, you know, mildly depressed. And uh, is that because of the hormones or is that because the experiment was over? Is that the aforementioned I'll never be the man I was kind of thing? I think it was all those things that led to my sort of down disposition afterwards. Forgive me. Yeah, did you ever maybe spice up what your activities in oh, order to make yeah. the book a little more? Yeah. Yeah, well, I mean, I was on, like I say, radical amounts of testosterone at times. I mean, going from very little at one point of the month to more than, you know, uh, bodybuilders would use for a couple of days. That was just sort of the wily method. She believes that the, um, that not only women, but men are on sort of a, a cycle hormonally. And that you sh so therefore you should take different amounts of, you should supplement your body you should supplement your levels of hormones with different amounts as as the month wears on. Uh, so I, I did not feel the need to sort of spice or spike uh, the levels I was taking. And in fact, Wiley um, is a it's a big no-no on the Wiley protocol to radically to stray radically from her proposed levels. And that's just her shtick. And uh, I, I've heard her get. I've heard of her getting very upset with people for taking less or more than she recommends. And I was a little intimidated by her. And, you know, my doctor said, you can stray a little bit, but not a lot. And so I, I felt, I mean, honestly, I felt like, you know, there was, there was, a, there was about 10 months. I, I, stopped the, I stopped taking it after 10 months. But there was 10 months of plenty of spice in my life sexually, physically, um, emotionally, I, I didn't feel the need to get kookier still. And, and really, I mean, I tried that in terms of finding growth hormone and I don't know what your guys feelings are about growth hormone, but again, my doctor wouldn't prescribe it to me and I wasn't going to go elsewhere for it. I, I, I was afraid again to have, um, you know, my, my best, medical advisor be what I could find on the internet with drugs that I've gotten um, without medical help. And nobody had offered me growth hormone. You know, I went to several doctors, anti-aging doctors, none of them were outspoken in terms of offering me growth hormone. And EPO, 
which is uh, this blood enhancer is, is not something given to healthy people ever. And so for me to take that would have been a huge no-no, although it would have had a huge impact on my bike racing because uh, blood enhancers are things that allow your, your your blood to become more concentrated with red blood cells. Um, you mix those drugs with uh, an oxygen-hungry sport like distance running or competitive cycling like the Tour de France, and you have huge improvements. But uh, I, I wasn't going to go there. That's an excellent segue to my next question. Speaking of the Tour de France, the most tested athlete probably in history, Lance Armstrong. There's a huge debate right now about whether or not he doped, and since you obviously have a pretty profound insight into this topic, do you think Lance doped? This sport has been around for over 100 years. Um, the sport of uh, cycling, and particularly you know, long, long races like the Tour de France, which go on for many, many, many days. Have That, that race is over 100 years old. That race began as uh, a media event. That race began when newspapermen wanted to figure out ways to sell newspapers on the other side of France all throughout the summer. And so they created this race called the Tour de France, which would go all around the country. And it was a circus event. And the people that raced in it were, they were victims and guinea pigs as much as they were athletes. And, you know, back in the early 1900s, nobody cared what these guys took in order to race the race, right? The newspapers got what they wanted. They got to report on this race happening all over the, all over the country. And uh, people bought newspapers to keep up with it and to find out what the other end of the country was like. Remind, you know, let's be mindful that the 1900s, early 1900s, there were no planes. There weren't a lot of cars. People didn't know what life was like on the other side of their own country. And so this, this race sort of would, would unite people and give them an, uh, an eye onto not only the racers, but their countryside. And these guys took everything. They took whatever they could find. They smoked cigarettes. They took nitroglycerin, cocaine, amphetamines, heroin, strychnine. These were the early years of the Tour de France, and the race grew up, and the sport grew up, and the sophistication in drugs grew up with it. And I find it really hard to believe, no matter you know, what any two, three, four, seven people tell me they're trying to do in terms of cleaning up cycling, that these drugs are not an enormous part of the sport. It doesn't mean I, I don't know Lance Armstrong. I have no idea at the end of the day. But I, I will tell you that he participated in a sport that has a long institutionalized track record of performance-enhancing drugs. And they've only, the drugs have only gotten better. <laughs> and and um, the mice, and those would be the athletes and the teams that manage these athletes, have only become... Uh, smarter in terms of uh, avoiding the cats, and that would be the cops uh, in terms of uh, being caught or not being caught. Uh, the, you know, recently the, the the guy who heads WADA, the World Anti Doping Agency, said that um, the very low percentage of of people being busted for taking these drugs isn't because there are so few drugs in sport; it's because they're so bad at at detecting them. This is the, the guy who runs the World Anti-Doping Agency. So for me, for, for me to hear Lance Armstrong say that he's been tested over and over and over again means very little in terms of whether or not he's taken these drugs. I hope I've done something to answer your question. Sorry, it was a very long answer to a very quick question. It, you showed a lot of uh, thinking about the problem in general there. And as a citizen scientist, as someone who's interested in, in pushing my own capabilities there, I look at Formula One racing. And the technologies that are out there in those cars over the course of 10 years make it into the cars we drive, which make them safer and faster and more efficient. And part of me looks at things like uh, competitive sports, and, and, and I'm just saying, I wish I just had a list of what all those guys were doing, because we know some of them are doing things they're not supposed to do. If we just opened up the, the training journals and, and the, the experiments that they're running, I, I feel like, like we would learn things about the way the human body works that no one knows because it's all secret. Um, at the same time, 
there's the argument that you know, athletes would kill themselves, and in surveys they actually admit they would to be top of their field. So I don't know how to optimize the answer to that, but man, I want the data. Well, I would agree, and I, I would, but I would disagree with you that that uh, all the time trickle down happens with with uh, you know in terms of what professional athletes have used and, and what amateur athletes enjoy from both an equipment standpoint. Right, I mean, we can we can ride the same bikes that the Tour de France racers went on um, to uh, the aerodynamic helmets they use in time trials. To I, I mean, the, the power bar was invented by elite distance runners. Gatorade was invented for um, elite football players. Uh, you know, over and over again, every day, I should say, every year, we we enjoy more that um, enjoy more of the technology that elite, elite athletes enjoy down to their coaching and the power, the aforementioned power meters that I was talking about. Those that, you know, uh, 20 years ago, power meters were, were utterly exotic items and the idea of training with them was, was not well known. But now, you know, 500 bucks will buy you a power meter and, and 100 bucks will buy you, 100 bucks a month will buy you a coach who can tell you exactly how to tailor your workouts to best work with those devices. And, and so I, I would say that we constantly enjoy trickle down from um, elite athletics. And, uh, but I would also agree with you, Dave, that where's this all headed? Because I, I think that we we want to emulate our heroes in all ways, and I think that is right down to the drugs they take, right down to the testosterone that they use, and perhaps the other drugs too. Although, tea the tea is the is the most accessible, um, you know, effective performance enhancing drug to my mind. You might know more, and you might you might beg to differ, but uh, I, I would argue and and worry about the idea of how far do we take this because you're right. Athletes have proven before that they will take whatever it takes to win, even if it kills them, and we've seen it happen. They've died in bike races. They've died on basketball courts. They've died in plenty of places unexpectedly um, and perhaps because of what the, what's inside of them. Most definitely. Well, I don't think we're going to get to uh, the, the optimal solution uh, here on the show today, but we do have time for the last question that we ask of all of the guests on the show, and, and that's based on your life experience. What are the top three things that people might consider doing to basically to be bulletproof in order to feel better, to have more energy, more power um, it, across any domain you've experienced? Well, other than ye olde eat, sleep, exercise, I would say be very curious about where the science is headed and, and be your own best advocate. Look at uh, the hormone science. Listen to your doctor. Ask your doctor, should I take supplements? Should I, take, should I be on hormone replacement therapy? Am I old enough for that? And if I should be, well, tell me the reasons why I shouldn't or shouldn't, uh, should or shouldn't. And are you going to monitor me if, if I do take this? And um, if, you're not, if you're unwilling uh, to take me on to do this, um, do you, can you suggest someone who, who else who might be willing to monitor me? Again, you're as healthy and as sort of progressive as your own mind and curiosity allows you to be. I, I really, I really like that. It makes great sense, and thank you for for answering that. Now, can you tell our listeners where they can learn more about you? We will, of course, include links on the website and in the show notes. But for people listening, what's your URL and the name of your book again, and uh, the other relevant contact info? Uh, my book is The Doper Next Door: My Strange and Scandalous Year on Performance Enhancing Drugs, published by CounterPoint. Uh, it's out in hardback. You can find it, of course, as an ebook as well. Um, it will. You can download it to to any of the ebook technologies. Uh, you can find me on Facebook. Uh, you can find me on Twitter, and uh, those are the best ways to find me. Excellent, Andrew. This has been a fascinating interview. I really appreciate you taking the time to share your experiences and to talk about your book today. Have a great afternoon. 
I really appreciate you having me on. Thank you so much. If you enjoyed this, we totally appreciate a positive ranking on iTunes. If you want to learn more about biohacking, try following at Bulletproof Exec or just read our blog. And we really appreciate people who sign up for our email list so we can let you know about new things that are happening and just keep the news flowing. The Human Upgrade, formerly Bulletproof Radio, was created and is hosted by Dave Asprey. The information contained in this podcast is provided for informational purposes only and is not intended for the purposes of diagnosing, treating, curing, or preventing any disease. Before using any products referenced on the podcast, consult with your healthcare provider, carefully read all labels, and heed all directions and cautions that accompany the products. Information found or received through the podcast should not be used in place of a consultation or advice from a healthcare provider. If you suspect you have a medical problem or should you have any healthcare questions, please promptly call or see your healthcare provider. This podcast, including Dave Asprey and the producers, disclaim responsibility for any possible adverse effects from the use of information contained herein. Opinions of guests are their own, and this podcast does not endorse or accept responsibility for statements made by guests. This podcast does not make any representations or warranties about guest qualifications or credibility. This podcast may contain paid endorsements and advertisements for products or services. Individuals on this podcast may have a direct or indirect financial interest in products or services referred to herein. This podcast is owned by Bulletproof Media.